0: All right, well, we've been in a series of talks in, uh, excuse me, we've been in a series of talks going through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and as I was reading in the Word this week, Proverbs 24, verse 10, I ran across it and I said, wow, what a timely scripture for us as a church, and it says, "If if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. And this series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, what we're talking about ultimately is tapping into the power source, the strength source that Jesus made a way for us to have. When he ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to us. And he said this in John 16, He will guide you into all truth. He'll not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to us to help us, guide us, speak to us, and give us power and strength so that we can do what he has called us to do. Acts 1, Jesus says this, you will receive power power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here's my goal for our time over the next couple of weeks, that we would receive and believe in a fresh way that there is power available to us through the person and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And uh, anybody in the house not want to become faint in the day of adversity? Right, I don't want to become faint in the day of adversity, and if you're wondering, we're in a few days of adversity, and I want to tap into the strength, the power, the hope of the Holy Spirit. Our anchor passage for this entire series is birthed out of 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 12, and this is what it says. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There's different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There's different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it's the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And then we see a transition in this passage into a list of these gifts. And that's what we're doing over these next few weeks as we are walking through that list. We are walking through the list of these gifts of the Spirit that are lined out for us in 1 Corinthians Twelve, so that we can understand more of what the gifts of the Spirit are, why Jesus gave them to us, and how those gifts can come alive in our lives. Today we're going to be talking about the gift of faith. The gift of faith. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that we today can enter into your throne room of grace, that we can step into the holy of holies because of the sacrifice that you paid on our behalf. And God, thank you for the word of God. Thank you you've given us a, an incredible, incredible roadmap to life with you and who you are and who you've called us to be. And Lord, I ask that right now you would open up our hearts and our minds to be able to receive the truth that you have for us. Jesus' name, everybody shouted because you're not watching golf. Now, you can't talk about faith without reading Hebrews 11.1. How many of you are familiar with Hebrews 11, known at times as kind of the hall of fame of faith? And it opens by defining faith. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we don't see. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we don't see. This is a wonderful framework for us as we are beginning to look at the gift of faith that is talked about in 1 Corinthians 12. Because let me explain something to you. Faith emerges in three different ways throughout the Bible. There are Three forms of faith that we encounter as we read through the scriptures. And Hebrews 11, this incredible definition of confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we don't see, actually holds within it all three forms of faith that we encounter through the Bible. These three forms of faith are unique, and at the same time, they lean on one another as we learn to be a 2 Corinthians 5-7 people that says that we live by faith and not by sight. So here they are, Ephesians 2-8 says it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It's a gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. We would call this form of faith saving faith, right? It's the faith and the confidence and the assurance that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. This is saving faith. We are saved through faith in Jesus. Now listen to Hebrews ten. 32. Remember those early days after you'd received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insults and persecution, at other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. I knew that word was going to mess me up. Oh, I should have spelled it out phonetically. Do you ever do that? When you like look at a word, you're like, that word is not that word. And then you sound it out, you're like, that is that word. But my brain doesn't see that word. So here we Pray for me. The confiscation of your property. Because you knew that you yourself had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. What first or excuse me, what Hebrews 10 32 through 36 is telling us is that there is an enduring faith. There's there's a there's a persevering faith. It's a faith that holds on to the promises that God has spoken, even in the face of difficulty, challenges, and persecution. Enduring faith is, is, is literally our ability to stand in the gap between what God has said and where we actually are. Persevering faith is absolutely critical to be alive within our hearts when we face life that is full of trouble. Can I get an amen? And then we see this faith in 1 Corinthians 12, That's this gift of faith, And kind of the common theological term for the faith that is talked about here in 1 Corinthians 12 is a charismatic faith. It's a supernatural faith that comes on us and carries extraordinary confidence in God's promises. It's a faith that comes on us. It's a supernatural faith that comes on us, carrying with it extraordinary confidence in God's promises. Can you see that it's through faith? That Jesus saved us and it's faith that, in, that we have to hold on to, to endure and stand through the trials that we are facing. And it's the gift of faith that comes over us and gives us unshakable confidence that God will do what he said he is going to do. We need all of the ways of faith, all the forms of faith that the Bible talks about alive in our lives. And here's why. This side of heaven, we live in a tension. This side of heaven, we live in a tension. And this tension is created because of the brokenness of the world around us and the mystery of how God moves in us. It means that that we live in the in-between. We live in the place of holding the promises that God has spoken over us and enduring what is happening in front of us. Have you ever felt the distance in what God has said and what you see? Anybody? Yeah, this is a universal problem. There is a tension that we all feel that is is in the middle of holding two realities. The reality of heaven and the promise of God and the reality of where we are believing for what God had said to come to pass. Some of these promises that we're holding on to are what I like to call universal promises, meaning God spoke these promises to us through the word of God, and they are for us to hold on to and to believe for. Like Jeremiah 29, 11, that says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, and plans to give you a hope and a future. That is an incredible promise that we can hold on to. We're like, God, you know the plans you have for me, and they're good plans, that is a promise that you should carry, especially when you feel like you're in a season where the plans are not going well. Remind yourself of the promise of God to you that He has plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope in the future. Or maybe it's a promise like Deuteronomy 31 8 that says, For the Lord Himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. What a great promise. What a great promise for all of us. A universal promise from the word of God that we can carry, grab hold of, and put our hope in. Some of the promises that we are holding in this tension are very personal. They're they're very personal. They're very specific. Like maybe you're believing for someone in your family to come to saving faith. And you're believing and you're praying and and, and you believe that God has put it on your heart to believe for that and you're hanging on to it, but you're living in a tension of the distance between the promise and where you're living. Maybe that promise is that your marriage is going to go from struggling to thriving, And and you're holding on to it, and you're praying into it, and you're leaning into it, and you're believing God for a miracle of restoration because of the brokenness of your relationship. The promises that we are holding on to in our hearts, both specific and universal, are under constant attack by the world, the flesh, and the devil. The promises that we're holding are under constant attack from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Listen to 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be alert and sober-minded because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So, so how does the, the devil devour us? How does the devil take us out? He lies to us and he attacks the things that God has spoken to us and he tries to get us to stop believing in the promise and start to believe the lie that he is giving us. That's how the enemy devours us. And 1 Peter 5 9 says this that we need to resist him. We need to stand firm in the what? Come on, are y'all with me this morning? Come on, I know it's August 7th, we're still kind of in summer, but I mean, we're going to take some ground today. (laughs) Resist him, stand firm in the what? In the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. This is important, because you have to understand that the fight to believe and endure for the new thing is not a new fight. This is a fight that has existed as long as sin has entered into the earth. Because as soon as sin entered into the earth, there became distance between the perfect will of God and the reality that we live. And so now we live in a tension, and that tension is not new. I've found that there's a couple of things that we need to be aware of to resist when we find ourselves in this tension of the in-between. And if you're a note taker, uh, I want you to write this down. We're only going to have time to talk about one of these tensions. But I want you to write this down. On the top of your page or type it in the bold text in your notes. Grumbling leads to death. Some of you are like, yo, that's kind of extreme, Pastor. <laughs> hang, hang with me. Grumbling leads to Death. Grumbling leads to death. I, I want to turn our attention for the rest of our time to a moment in history where the people of God were literally rescued from a place of bondage, given a giant promise, and then had to journey through challenges to then receive what God promised. This is a famous story of the people leaving Egypt, the people of Israel leaving Egypt and journeying towards the promised land. Now, here's the thing. I've got about... 15 minutes left. Let me tell you what I can't do. What I can't do is read the entire book of Exodus to us and walk through every beautiful twist and turn of the hand of God and all of the mystery and majesty of the kingdom of heaven that is expressed in those pages. I would encourage you to do it because if you need to get some enduring faith stirred into your bones, read stories of people that had to endure in their faith. And so I'd encourage you to do that. But today, for the remainder of our time, this will be a flyover at best, okay? We're going to fly over the top of the book of Exodus. We're going to look at it from 30,000 feet because I believe that God wants to open our eyes to the tension and the weapon of the enemy and then the solution of heaven. Exodus 1, we find the people had landed in Egypt. They had landed there, and God began to bless them. How many of you know that God blesses his people? And God began to bless them, and so they began to multiply. They fell in love with each other. They got married, and they had lots of kids. And so the people of God began to grow, and this is what we see in verse 8. The new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt, Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, and they will become even more numerous. If war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. Okay, A little not preaching about this, but just tuck this away. Fear always leads to division. He was fearful, and so he decided to, to institute oppression and division. That's the consequence of allowing fear in our life. We will do the exact same thing. We become fearful of something. We will oppress it or we will divide ourselves from us. That's why the Bible says that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Verse 11 says, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. Now jump with me to verse 12. But the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Again, little beautiful little twist and turn here. How many of you know that God's people always thrive under persecution? So even as it feels like culture is turning against the church, we should not get fearful but excited. Because all throughout biblical history and church history, every time the church is persecuted, the church Multiplies things grow because you can't stop what God had said. The Egyptians came, the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly, and they made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And this went on for years and years and years. And then finally in Exodus 2, verse 23, they looked up to where their help comes from. And it says this, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and cried for help because of their slavery, and it went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant. You know, God hears your cries. God hears you in your place of desperation. And he reminds himself, I love that. He didn't forget, but that's a picture of stirring yourself up in promises you already know. And he heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about Them And this was the start, the beginning of God beginning to move behind the scenes to begin to shape and shift what the Israelites were seeing. How many of you know that God always moves in the unseen before we see it in the scene? There's always things that happen where we don't see that shapes the things that we do see. All of us probably are here because somebody prayed for us that we didn't even potentially know very well. You definitely had a mama or a grandmama who prayed for you probably. Things in the unseen always influence then what's coming in the scene. And God heard their groanings and he was concerned about them. And so God began to initiate a rescue mission for the people. Now here's the thing. How many of you know that God can be moving and it can still look like we're losing? This is going to help some people because God was moving. He was raising up a deliverer. That deliverer was named Moses. At the time Moses was born, Pharaoh, in his fear, made a decree that all firstborn males that were born needed to be killed. But God spared Moses, and you know what? In the beautiful way that only God can, as his mother sent him down the river instead of killing him or hiding him instead of the people being able to kill him, and then Pharaoh's wife found him. I love this. Pharaoh's wife finds him, and then when Pharaoh's wife finds him, she's like, oh my gosh, you are beautiful. You look like this guy named J.D. (laughs) And so she takes him in, And he begins to live in the palace. So here you have a Israelite now being embedded into the highest place of influence and authority in the Egyptian kingdom. He was treated as a king. He lived as a king, but he knew that what he was a part of was not who he was called to be. And it came to Past when he was walking one day and seeing the oppression of the Israelites and it overwhelmed him to such a degree that he couldn't be silent anymore and he went and literally killed a guard who was beating a slave of course then he knew like oh i have to get out of here right and so he flees egypt and goes into the middle of nowhere isn't it amazing how this is a story of a rescue mission and it sounds like chaos Think about this. This is the guy, the deliverer, and now he's a murderer on the run. Nothing seems to be going as planned. Nothing seems to be working in the right direction. Hear me, hard is not bad. Just because something is hard and slow doesn't mean that God is not moving and the promise is not being fulfilled right in front of your eyes. Hard is not bad. I've said this many times before. We have become soft as a culture. We have become soft as Christians. Anything that becomes uncomfortable, we're like, God must not be there. But we are called to storm hard and bring light into dark places. And that's a confrontational, painful place. We're called to be strong in the faith. Not easily swayed and pushed around. We're, we're, we're called to stand for what we believe in. So here you have a story of chaos, of running, of fear, of failure. And then God finds Moses. How many of you know that you can't run from Moses? You can run from people, but you can't run from God. I said, God, you can't run from Moses. You can, because he was just a dude. But you can't run from God. That's right. Got to correct it, because I'll get a couple emails. You know you can run from Moses here. Yeah. Go ahead, send them. I'll let Moses read them. We're good. (laughs) The Lord finds Moses, says this, Exodus 3. I have have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land into a good, spacious land flowing with milk and honey. How many of you have ever seen Veggie Tales, right? I have to agree they got that one right. It sounds sticky. You know what I'm saying? Flowing with milk and honey. It's poetic. I don't know if I want to feel it, though, you know? Like, I don't know if I'm feeling that. But I like to visualize it. It seems nice. It feels sweet, right, Dave? It's like a good, yeah. Flowing with milk and honey. It's the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pizzarites. Now, here's the thing. This is a list of people that are already inhabiting the land that God had had for them. The reason why that's important is because we never take ground in the kingdom unless we're standing up against those forces that oppose the kingdom. This was a land that was carved out for the people of God on the earth that had been inhabited by other people, all right? So to take ground means that we're going to have to come against some opposition in seeing the promise fulfilled. Verse nine, verse 9, and now the cry of the Israelites have reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now here's the thing. After God spoke to him, and it's crazy, man, I wish we could get into it. There was like a burning bush, and it wasn't burning, and like, it's like Moses was drawn to it because he's like, what's happening here? This is weird and crazy. And then a voice comes and says, take your shoes off, and he's like, what is happening Right, it was like a blowaway experience. And God speaks this crazy like you're the I'm raising you up to deliver the people out of the hands of the Egyptians. And Moses is like, I'm not sure you got the right guy. So now we're in a negotiation with the living God. All right. And God in his grace doesn't just smite Moses, but engages with Moses in his lack of faith. And so he begins this negotiation process, and all these crazy miracles happen, and God begins to speak to him. And eventually, him and his brother Aaron, everybody say, oh, I'm so thankful for Aaron. He kind of screwed up later in the story. But like Aaron came with Moses to tell Pharaoh. Now, if you ever went to Sunday school, you can say this part with me. To tell Pharaoh what? Let my people go yeah that's right like so that that's the whole thing they go they tell pharaoh let my people go and then there are these crazy things that god does crazy miracles like unbelievable miracles and then these plagues that come and it's just like god is demonstrating i am in control Pharaoh, you think you're in control, but I am in control. But then there's this oscillation, like the Pharaoh would be like, yeah, go ahead. You can leave. And he's like, no, you can't leave. And And then finally, there's like comes to this incredibly critically painful point where Pharaoh comes face to face that the God of the Israelites should not and shall not and cannot be tested. And after that incredible realization and revelation that Pharaoh has, he says, during the night, he summoned Moses and Aaron, and he said, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested, take your flocks, take your herds, and he said, also, hey, could you bless me on the way out? I love that. He's like, he's like, get out of here, but your God's kind of a big deal. I feel that now. Can you shout out a little blessing to me? I'd appreciate that. Then the people are like, are you kidding me? This is really happening. They gather all their stuff, and they head out. They leave slavery. They're walking towards the promised land, right? But the road that was in front of them was different than what they were expecting, God had said, I'm going to take you into the promised land. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be flowing with milk and honey. You're going to love it. But their journey was not easy. Their journey was hard. And I tell you all of that backstory to emphasize the number of miracles that God did to get the people out of Egypt. And I just want to say, do you know the significance of the miracles that God did to deliver you from sin? The things that God did were no small feat, like conquering sin and death, dying on a cross. Those were massive things that happened in your life, in the story of your life. And the reason why I want us to see this connection is because what's coming for the people seems unthinkable. But it's what happens when we find ourselves in the end Between place. Exodus 16 says this. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of sin. As a general rule, I would say let's go around that desert. Okay? Comes to the desert of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. All right, let's do a little math. 45 days. 45 days since they had come out of Egypt. 17 days after they had walked through the Red Sea. Just think about that miracle in and of itself. The Red Sea is in front of them. The Egyptians coming to recapture them are behind them. God says, don't fear. Moses, wave your stick in the air. Like you just don't care then the waves in the sea splits the ground that had been saturated for as long as the ocean had been there becomes dry and they walk through the red sea on dry ground and as they are walking through it the egyptians try to come through it but god drowns the egyptians as the as the people of israel are walking through the, Wow, can we just all just acknowledge, like, that would be pretty cool. Like, I think I would be like, okay, God, you're real. Okay, I see that. I I don't think, 17 days, 17 days from that moment, 45 days since they had left Egyptian captivity, 17 days from the moment they walked through the Red Sea, they said this in Exodus 16, verse 2, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all kinds of food that we wanted, but you have brought us out here into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. 17 days. Let me just tell you, It happens that fast. We can lose sight of the fact that God is leading us, providing for us, and moving supernaturally right in front of us. As soon as we begin to grumble, our faith dies, our hope dies, our joy dies, and we begin to long for the very place that we beg to be delivered from. We're like, man, couldn't we just go back and be slaves? Wasn't life good when we were slaves? Wasn't it so good? You remember, that? you remember that spice they had that they used to put on the lamb? Ooh, I could go for some of that right now. Here's the thing. As soon as the people lost sight of what God had done and focused on what still needed to happen, they stopped believing And who God was. This is why we have to have enduring faith. We have to have enduring faith. Because as soon as the people started feeling a little uncomfortable, they got a little hungry, they forgot what God had been doing, and they could not get past what they were feeling. The temptation to grumble about where we are and what isn't happening in the in between place is real. And that temptation has soul crushing consequences. Grumbling leads to death, death of our faith. Death of our hope, definitely death of our joy. And we see this in the people of Israel as they were not hopeful about where God is taking them. They were not hopeful that God was going to continue to provide for them. They became so hopeless that they were longing for bondage. But God has given us a weapon against the temptation to grumble and complain in the tension of the in-between. And the weapon that God has given us to fight against that temptation is the weapon of the gift of faith. How do we stand in the in-between and we're unmoved? We lean on enduring persevering faith. How do we do that? By reminding ourselves about what God has done, what he has said. And when we're tempted to lose sight of the glory of God in the place of pain, to lose sight of the bigness of God in the place of disappointment, every time we're tempted to do that, when we remind ourselves about who God is, the promise becomes bigger than our circumstances. When we lift our eyes to the heavens and we say, God, I know what's in front of me, but I know who goes before me. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We have to remember what God has And as we do that, it strengthens our faith. It holds us together. It allows us to endure and persevere. And as we're walking through what feels like a wilderness or a story of chaos or what doesn't seem A does not equal B and C does not equal D, and you're like, I don't understand how this is going to work. I don't understand how this is going to move forward. We can stay focused and be unshaken when we remember what God has done and get lost in what God said he was going to do. But as soon as we start focusing our eyes on what still needs to happen, we will be distracted and begin to grumble. And grumbling always leads to death. And as we are in that place of enduring faith, I believe that then we begin to ask God for that charismatic faith, that gift of faith. God, give me an unshakable expectation that you are going to do what you said you were going to do. And there have been so many times in my life where I have been standing in enduring faith and I have dipped in and out of grumbling and complaining and whining and, and, and not believing and, and, but fighting to stay believing. And I've had to say, God, but you have to come. You've got to give me extra. You got to give me some of this this gift of faith, this charismatic faith that makes me unshakable, unshakable in the promise that you have called me to believe for. And there is no other moment in my life where I had needed to lean on the enduring faith of heaven and believing God for that, that gift of faith to be an unshakable force within me was in the story of when we adopted our twins from Burundi. Most of you guys know we have four kids, two of which are twins that we adopted from Burundi in about February of 2016. A lot of you guys don't know that that journey was a journey of about six years that felt like we were wandering around in the wilderness, wondering what in the world are we doing and how are we going to get to what God promised he said he was going to do. For one, there were so many mountains that were in our way. I mean, international adoption in and of itself is a mountain. They tell you right off the bat, prepare to be disappointed. Nothing is going to go how you would assume. It's going to take twice as long as we say it's going to. It's going to be harder than you think, and it's going to cost way more money than you have. You're like, thanks for the pep talk. I appreciate it. And then you have this financial thing. Dude, like, I'm a pastor, man. Like, And, and so I'm like, how are we going to pay for this? Like, like let alone... Do we have what it takes to, to see it through? And then there's these practical mountains that we're staring at as well. And a lot of times people ask like, well, how did you know that you were supposed to adopt? Well, Liz, because I don't think she's ever sinned, like woke up out of the slumber of, uh, of labor and had a heart to, for the least of these, okay? Not me, all right? Uh, she told me right when we got married, oh, I feel like we should adopt some kids. I'm like, cool, yeah, and no, I'm not feeling that. I don't, I don't feel that same thing at all. But then I went to Uganda and when I was in Uganda, I spent three weeks in northern Uganda and I spent this, my time in this little bitty village that doesn't even exist on a map and that entire village was run by kids because all of the adults had either been killed or died of disease and were hanging out there literally just trying to stabilize the situation and I left that trip and I just kind of was sitting in my office back in Seattle where I lived at the time undone like you know like just like heartbroken heartbroken like you know you ever see something you're like I'm never the same because I saw that like I'm never the same because I experienced that and that's what happened to me and I'm like God like what am I supposed to do and God asked me a question he said can you be a dad and we had two kids we had two we had one kid at the time Liz was pregnant I was like yeah I can be a dad I can be a dad He's like, that's all I'm asking you to do is just be a dad. And so I remember I called Liz and I'm like, I'm in, let's do it. You know, and so then we start the process. And there's, you know, if you've ever known anybody who goes through adoption, it's like you fill out a pile of paperwork, and it's like this hurry up and wait game. You fill out paperwork, you submit it to people that don't do anything fast in life, and then you wait. Then they send you something back. Oh, you forgot to sign page 3072. So then they send everything back, and you sign that page, and you send it back, and then they're like, oh, but now this is, doesn't count anymore. It is expired, so you need to resubmit this form. And so you're just in this, like, constant swirl of difficulty, and you're like praise God for bureaucracy and so we're in this kind of fight right and we're in the normal thing it's like we're about three years in and we get a phone call from our agency and they're like hey uh bad news Uganda is closing the program they're like, you have two options, really. Like you can hang in there and maybe Uganda, Uganda will open up or you can jump on another list of another African country that we have. And so Liz and I were like, dude, what do we do? Is this a closed door? Is this something that we persevere for? And again, God has brought back to the very same thing that got us in the game. He said, can you be a dad? And I'm like, all right. And we felt like we were supposed to adopt from Africa so we just kept moving forward. We jumped on the Ghana list. We stayed on the Uganda list and we're just kind of moving forward. Fast forward a year. Get another phone call. We're thinking, man, we're at the end, dude. We're like right there. We're we're the next family in line in Ghana. We're the third family in line in Uganda. And then so we're like, dude, if Uganda opens, we're really, really close. If Ghana, this could be the call for us to go pick up some kids in Ghana. We're excited. And we get the call, hey, Ghana is doing exactly what Uganda did. They're closing the program down too. And then they threw the icing on the cake. And they said, we're not aware of any agencies that are doing any adoptions out of Africa at this time. And I remember Liz and I sitting on our bed just like weeping, going, God, like, why why did you take us this far? Why did we walk all the way around this thing to come to this unmovable mountain that is outside of our control? And then God just spoke to us, and he said, you're not done. Do what I asked you to do. And Liz looks at me and goes, I feel like I'm supposed to do research. And I'm like, okay, wow, I'm thankful God never tells me to do research. And so she, like, goes on her computer, and she's like, you know, and there was... One country, this country of Burundi, that had just started doing international adoptions. We were, at the end of the story, the second American family to bring Burundians to America. We're like the very front end of the deal. If you meet our twins, the only thing that makes them feel different than us is that they have different skin. They are so Griffins, it's bananas. We got pictures of them when they were little And I'm like, oh my gosh, they were posing the way that Sophie and Tate pose in photos. And it was just this wild thing. And so then we begin the process of like, all right, we jump in, we get into the Burundi deal, we're doing the thing, normal process. Once we jumped into Burundi, it was a normal thing. No chaos, no confusion. It was smooth, bam, 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 bam. All the chips just kept lining up and blah, 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 blah. And then we get the phone call, hey, come pick up your twins. We're like, are you kidding me? And then I'm sitting in the office, getting ready to meet Kevin and Nest for the very first time in Burundi. And I realize This is about six and a half years from when we started this process. Kevin and Annette are six and a half years old. We've been praying for them, believing for them, asking God to protect them, hold them, speak to them, move on their life for the entire time that they've been alive. And we couldn't have adopted from Burundi when we started the process because Burundi didn't even have adoptions. So what felt like wilderness was just God leading us on a journey into his perfect timing. Here's the thing. Don't think the wilderness is not God moving. Have enduring faith. Pray for charismatic faith, the faith that comes on you to endure, to hang on. Because you know what? Now our family is complete. Our family is complete. But you know what I think about sometimes? What if we would have given up in the middle? What if at that four-year point we would have said, God, you know what? Maybe this is a closed door. We just need to stop and pull it out. We would have missed out on the most beautiful, amazing thing that God had for our entire family. I'm so thankful for the gift of faith. I need you to do me a favor. I want you to stand to your feet. I know I went a little long today, and I knew I was, and I'm sorry. If you need extraordinary faith, the gift of faith right now in your life, you're facing a mountain that feels unmovable. You're in the middle of a wilderness that you are tempted to grumble and complain and to lose sight of what God said he was going to do as you're facing the challenges that are in front of you. And you're like, man, I need faith right now. I need enduring faith right now. I need that charismatic gift of faith right now. I want you just to boldly raise your hand because God is going to move in power. I see you. All right, let's just pray for these. If you're around them, maybe even put a hand on their shoulder. Jesus, right now, I just release in this room the gift of faith. I release faith in this room. Faith, an extraordinary ability to believe that you are going to do what you said you were going to do. God, I just release the gift of faith, just this ability to lock in to the promises and to not be distracted by the challenges. God, I'm asking right now for words, scriptures, reminders of who you are and what you've already been doing. Lord, open their eyes to see how you've been moving, how you've been doing things in front of them, how there's been supernatural things that are already happening behind the scenes. And Lord, I ask God that there would be a fresh wind of endurance and resilience and perseverance to keep believing, to keep enduring, to hold the faith and to be confident, to be assured of what we hope for, to be assured, confident in what we can't see. In Jesus' name, amen.